Welcome to Message Received. In this longer episode, Tim chats to Sandra Mayer, co-founder and partner of Growth Bay. They both deep dive into why creative and system thinking is effective, discussing how content is key and how leadership is important to grow business and your personal self. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Message Received. I'm really pleased to be in conversation today with Sandro Meyer from Growth Bay. But I think Sandro and I have a lot in common. We are very interested in content, depth of content. We're very interested in systems, how systems work together, and then leadership. So lots to talk about. Sandro, welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be on. So let's start with the highlight reel, the Sandro highlight reel. If we gave us your background and I said, cut out all the boring stuff, like what's what are the interesting things we need to know about you to locate you on the map? I started out in IT. I was a system administrator and when we still had servers in server rooms. (laughs) Then my very first time I was in touch with marketing was actually when I was working at Apple. I was in business development, but there was a lot of marketing mixed into the whole thing. And I started studying quite late. So in in Switzerland, for, for those people listening that are not from Switzerland, we have an apprenticeship model. So I actually did an apprenticeship because I was like, yeah, but I don't even know what to study. And so I started quite late, started international management. I actually did it because a lot of it was was about culture. So a third of the whole degree was just about culture, learning about different cultures. And and I got to go away for a year um, and study somewhere else. And during that time, I was going to New York and all of a sudden I heard for the first time stuff about startups and like, oh, that's pretty cool. Starting something from nothing. I'm a curious person like I am, that sounds amazing. And so when I came back to Zurich and sought out startup ecosystems coming from a corporate like Apple, this seemed to be much more exciting all of a sudden. Forwarding a few years, I became CMO at, at 26 at a startup that was half here in Zurich and half in New York. So I got to go back. And that's where my first failure comes in. We had a huge Kickstarter campaign. It failed. I mean, we were like, oh, we need to make 10 million to make the business work and stuff like that. And it didn't work. We got like 150K, which was okay, but it was not the goal. And when I reflected back, I was like, I had no systems. I had no processes. I had no focus. I didn't really know if marketing was for me, whether I was to be successful in this kind of line of work. Uh, Because I don't think of myself as like a very structured person per se. I'm more of a creative person. I started reading up on like, okay, what are systems actually? Why do I need to focus? Why can I not just do everything at once? From there, I applied for a job at another startup here um, in Switzerland, built a marketing team there. And I was very lucky that it was a very smart team with a knack for simplicity, business systems, relentless focus. And so it fit perfectly into my, my narrative of what I wanted my job to be and learned from the CEO at the time what these terms mean and how they are applied. For me, this was kind of the journey of the past, I would say, 10 years after I built the marketing and sales team at this startup with the system. I generated, it was like 500 leads a month, um, but it was systemized. What I remember Reto, the CEO, telling me was basically a little machine that you left behind it works. It still works. And you can just plug in other people, so to speak, into the system. And the creative part is basically, maybe we can talk about this more afterwards. The creative part is more at the beginning, what do you put inside the machine? Now I have my own agency, Growth Bay, as you mentioned. And that was a very long introduction, but I hope it helped a little bit. 
Yeah, lots of very interesting themes there. I don't know where to start. What's in my mind is the relationship between creativity and systems. And I think the kind of false view that they are contradictory to each other, that creative people have freedom and an empty wall and they just fill it with what they want. You know, it's just all your right brain intuitive thinking and that systems people are analytical and they are structured and they don't know how to be creative. And yet every creative person that I've ever met, every artist, every dancer, every writer has a system. The way that they're able to be successful is that they follow the system and that, you know, you're not relying on raw inspiration. You're applying with discipline your system and it is going to produce great work over time because you've tweaked it the right way. So maybe we go there. So people who are listening, who are interested in communication, they want to make their communication creative and interesting, or they want to get a message out there to the world. Uh, they want to use content marketing and they're focused on the super cool part of it. Like, what are we saying and who's our demographic? And then you're saying, well, wait a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. The system is key. The machine is key. Tell us more about this relationship between creativity and systems thinking. The central part about this is like, what are we optimizing for? And I mean, if we're optimizing for having as much creative freedom as possible, that needs room. And what systems do is they systematize the non-creative stuff so that you have more room for the creative. And I think that was a major insight for me at some point, because if you leave life all to just creativity, it's pretty chaotic. It gets pretty chaotic and entropy sets in and you don't get to do all the creative stuff oftentimes because you also need to pay the bills. And you also need to, unless you're a full-time artist, think about like, okay, so where is the order in my life coming from? Because if you're in the business world, you need that in order to succeed. For me, it was really about this principle of discipline actually creates the freedom that you need in order to be creative. I mean, for me, this was a game changer and it enabled me to go deep on the things that I'm interested in because now I have time freed up. Systems are everywhere, right? I mean, everything is a system. Everything is interconnected in the world. Looking at the world and everything that you do as a system helps because then you understand what the parts are of that system and what you like about that system, what you don't like about that system, what you can change, what you can automate, what you can eliminate and so forth. And it just helps. To me, I'm, I'm a very chaotic person by nature. And so introducing a little bit of order, a little bit of system, a little bit of discipline helped me tremendously. A system for you, does that include your schedule? Is your agenda a system? Is the flow of work that you do in the week or the sequence of work that you do in the week? Like if you boiled it right down for us, like when you say system for yourself, what do you mean? An ideal system has goals, has a certain order, inputs, has outputs, has boundaries, is set in a specific context. The important thing is you can over-systematize and then your creativity is gone. So I'll give you an example. One system that I've set up for myself in my agenda, Mondays and Tuesdays, I have no meetings. I have no contact with other human beings unless it's specifically for a certain project. And that I say that as an agency owner, that's really tough to do, but I kind of set it down for me as a principle, so I don't need to think about it. So when I make uh, appointments with people in the now and in the future, I never have to think about it. Monday and Tuesday are off limits. And how do you communicate that to your clients? 
pretty much like that. I say like to me to do good work, I need one, two days out of the week where I sit down and think the stuff through that you want me to do. Or, or even my own projects, but that's not really relevant to the client. I'm pretty open and we have set down certain principles for our business that just make everything else down the line easier. And in the beginning, it's a bit hard to tell this to clients. But in the end, what I found is most people respect it, actually. And they see the benefit from it. Yes. Why Monday, Tuesday? Why not Thursday, Friday? I like to start the week with stuff that excites me and stuff where I kind of had the weekend to marinate it in my mind and then can get to work on Monday, Tuesday. So this system, the purpose of it is to give your mind, give your brain an optimal condition coming Monday morning. Is it something like that? Like, how do you define in your mind if you said, you said earlier, you know, it's about a goal, it's about boundaries, it's about all these different Mm -hmm. elements. Mm -hmm. What are you optimizing with the Monday, Tuesday? So the goal of the system of my weekly agenda is to optimize my energy levels because I just found at some point that the bottleneck is your energy and what you do when. But that's what kind of led me on onto this journey. And then the order is like pretty straightforward, Monday to Sunday. And to me, so let me quickly lay it out. Monday, Tuesday is for creative work. Obviously, whenever I have a lot among the week, two, three hours at once, I, I do that as well. And then Wednesday is for kind of specific client work where I need to talk to collaborators. Thursday is client meetings. Friday is content writing only, nothing else. And then Saturday is what I call planned spontaneity. So no schedule whatsoever, ever on a Saturday. And then Sunday is wildcard, <laughs> whatever, usually going on a trip or or taking walks and then do a weekly review in the evening. So that's the whole system. And the inputs in that specific scenario are everything people want from you and what you want from yourself. And the output is the work that you need to create. And the boundaries are really like the principles, as I just mentioned, for example, the boundaries, I don't want to work past 7 p.m. That would be a boundary, right? The context is my general work and life, which I don't like work-life balance much. To me, it's one life and I try to design it to my best possible knowledge. And it's also iterating. I mean, everything I just mentioned is iterating. I mean, the system that I just mentioned is maybe in place for a couple of years now, but it might change. It's not set in stone. But it seems to be producing some great work. For those who haven't checked out Sandro on Twitter or on LinkedIn, you should. And you produce a blog that is uh, very well written, short. It feels like someone who's combed over every sentence. So your system has an obvious benefit in terms of quality of output to try to bring this home for the listeners. So let's say someone's listening who says, you know, you're an entrepreneur, you're a creative person. I work in the marketing department of a multinational company or I'm a scientist. I can't take Mondays off. I have to be in the lab. Like people who feel that what you're saying is only relevant to someone with a lot of freedom and also Mm -hmm. in a very explicitly creative business. How do we translate what you've told us into broader applications for marketers, for people who want to get out there with their message? You have a system right now. It might be chaotic, but you still have a system. It doesn't really matter what the setting is. All that you need to think about if you think about how you can optimize your system is what are your constraints? And yeah, maybe your constraint is you can only take one hour out of each day for creative work. But are you taking that hour? And how can you take that hour more often? I can give you an example in terms of specific marketing, right? So for example, the podcast, 
that we do. It's called the Growth Leadership Show. And it's next to the newsletter, kind of another content venture that's going on. What I found in the beginning is I need to do everything myself for a little while so that I understand what the pieces are. So for example, to me, the podcast is kind of one channel and it's content marketing. So let's go into that specifically. I started out doing everything myself, including the audio and video editing, everything. And then once I understood what all the pieces are, I could then say like, okay, actually it doesn't make a lot of sense that I do the video editing because I am not a video editor. So I started asking around and say like, how can I replace this part of the process with someone who is doing that? And now a student who is studying audio and video engineering is super happy that I pay him a hundred bucks an episode so he can finance his study. He's faster. He does a better job than I do. This is what I mean by designing a system, right? It's like looking at all the parts and all the processes inside that you currently already do and think about, could you delegate something? Could you eliminate a step? What's really necessary? And so I have much more output because I have specifically looked at every part of the process and how I personally do it, because I'm not so good cognitively just thinking about this. I actually put it in a flowchart and look at like, okay, what actually needs to happen And that's great because then you can show it to whoever you collaborate with. Maybe that helps a little bit to see a concrete example of how I started a new venture with this podcast. I did everything myself. And then I looked at what are all the different parts that I have just done over the past two months. Can I eliminate, delegate, or simplify or automate anything in that process? What I find particularly interesting about your approach, and maybe it's like your meta system, is you seem very focused on starting from the ground up and acquiring true knowledge for yourself uh, through doing. And uh, I'm gonna read a quote that these are your words. Now I am of the school that knowledge has no inherent value. And you go on in that blog to basically say, look, if you're just taking a nice sounding quote from the internet and then putting it at the beginning of your presentation to make it seem like a cool presentation, and you don't really know, not only have you not read the original source, but you haven't in a way lived the original source. It's it's just cool sounding stuff that you don't know in substance. You could not have delegated the podcast editing to that person properly unless you had done it yourself. Can you tie this to content marketing for us? Because I think Mm -hmm. skeptics of it feel like it's just ideas made by the pound almost or like let's churn out content by the word and it's uh, superficially researched. It is it's it's kind of like why not just go to the library and read some books on these topics? Why are you trying to get quick 90 second little summaries on the internet written by someone who never read the primary source themselves. Like for people who are cynical about content marketing, you seem to be very much the antidote because you want people to go and read the original sources. You want them to take the time Mondays and Tuesdays to unplug and think deeply and understand. Uh, what's, What's your philosophy of content marketing? There's a couple of approaches, right? Oftentimes, and what you're describing And that's what also we're seeing when we're Googling stuff is most stuff is written by content marketers, especially in the marketing and communication space. So it's basically keyword optimized. So this is very technical. 
you basically look at the top 10 results for the term you want to rank for, and then you make a better post with more keywords in there and better answers to the questions that people search for, which is an approach. I like other approaches better that I also developed. By the way, I, I mean, I started like this, so there's nothing wrong with that. I just think we kind of overdid it as an industry. So now I have basically two approaches. And one approach is customer research. You do interviews with, ideally, you can do it with prospects. So let's say you do 10 interviews, you do five with prospects and five with current customers. If you want to go even more fancy, you can do, let's say, four customers, three prospects, and then three people who didn't choose you, even better. And then you just ask them like, hey, how does your day look like? What are your challenges? Where do you go if you need information? Where do you educate? Stuff like that. And you don't talk. You ask questions. That's it. And then you listen. And what you will find is people love to talk about their problems and also their wins. First of all, it gives you a really good intuition for the customer, for the potential customer, and what their day looks like and what their challenges and wins look like. What are their goals? And then when you actually go down and qualitatively analyze the transcripts that you made or like the notes, if you didn't record it, you realize their patterns. You can then afterwards say like, okay, so apparently, and this is a real example from a campaign that I did, research campaign. Oh, okay. So people really struggle with measuring UX. Okay. That's a great theme. So let me talk about that. We might have not thought inside the team that that was the most interesting topic. We didn't want to write about it necessarily in the beginning. But after you hear, and that's what happens with intuition, and you get an empathy for the customer, you start getting interested as well because you're actually solving a problem. And if they have a problem, they also Google it. So that's kind of, in my way, a better approach to content marketing that actually leads to a win-win on both sides. And, it, and it's not so shallow. Because afterwards, you can actually go back to the people that told you that was a problem and say like, hey, look, I, I tried to put down my thoughts and solve it for you. I hope it helps. And then the second approach, and that's one that is more like mostly thought around what thought leadership is, is as a company, specifically, your goal with content in that lane is to build trust and to tell the narrative and your point of view of why does your product or service exist and what's your reason for being in this industry? Where do you see it going? That's your point of view. And hammering home that point of view in the sense of basically light it from a thousand different angles until people understand where you're coming from. Why are you doing it this way, not this way? What do you see? Why is there a problem in the industry? And how are you solving this problem? These are, to me, two approaches to content marketing that are very helpful. In one, you are solving a specific problem to for a customer. And in the second, you are actually explaining your point of view, your unique point of view, your perspective on the industry to the people that are interested in such things. And I think then it becomes helpful because you are actually furthering the discussion. Several thoughts are in my mind. One is the slow cooking movement that says, hey, let's actually have fewer ingredients of higher quality. Let's take more time to cook, not less. I don't want to save you time. I'm not here to save you time in making the soup. I want you to take the time to make the soup. So there's something about high nutrition value in this content because you've created it through genuinely understanding the customer. And then the way you express the thought leadership being all about trust is amazing in the sense that 
I want to go on a very long journey with you. Right. I want us to get to a very good place. The other thought you've put into my mind, I heard a podcast interview with Barack Obama talking mm -hmm. about his success and how it came to be. And he said that there's a big difference between a campaign and a movement. So if you're trying if you're trying to drive a campaign, you take a it's quick hits, it's it's lists, it's a movement, it's longer in its vision, it's getting people genuinely involved, it's really knowing the people of the movement. So maybe the question I'm coming to is are you satisfied with the label of content marketing? Is that just the label of the day? I could call what you're doing education, I could call it journalism, I could call it research, I could call it community building. I know you've got these these lovely four C's of a modern brand, community, content, curation, collaboration. And I feel like maybe you're applying all four of those in the stories that you've just told. So how satisfied are you with our current ability to talk about content marketing? Well, it's an issue because what happened in marketing in general is performance marketing came onto the stage, which means, okay, you now you need to measure everything. In B2B, this is not helpful. In B2C, it's a bit easier because you can actually track a lot, but B2B is a relationship business. This is not how it works. You cannot measure a referral and you cannot measure how you influence people with your ideas. And so, like, to me, usually when I still talk about content marketing just because that's what people understand, because I need to speak in the language that they understand. I, I mentioned this in a recent podcast, and I apologize already to all future customers of ours. We actually hide customer research from the offer. We just do it. Because if you say you do customer research and you talk, people are like, yeah, but we've already done that. That's not how it works and stuff like that. So people are a bit, so especially in marketing, when everything is measured, you know, research has no direct dollar value to it. You, it's really hard to measure what I just mentioned before. This process of coming up with measuring UX is, I mean, that's basically the outcome. And you could argue, if we do a brainstorm, you could come out with that. Okay, well, maybe, but maybe not, right? And so um, I think like, in, in a lot of sense, I don't like the word content that much. The content marketing guy who doesn't like the word content, tell me more. What you're trying to do with content really is educating or entertaining. That's in the end what people come for. Sometimes it's pure information, but usually it's one of those two. And especially in B2B, it's oftentimes education. And so what your goal should be is trust. The more your product costs, the higher trust you need. Your SEO focused content playbook won't work. Because you need to have this perspective that I was telling before. You need to tell me why I need to buy this product from you that costs or the service that costs me 50K. Why you? I often say like, what you're selling as a business is not a product you're selling a perspective. What is my perspective on the problem you're trying to solve? And why do you need to solve it this way? Because that's basically what your company does, right? I mean, it, it created a, a solution based on a problem that you thought that was in the industry. And that perspective, what is that perspective that you have on the industry that others haven't? And that's what you're trying to do to create trust. So to me, if you are optimizing for clicks, you can do that. But that's not creating the business. I mean, in the end, the business is created, I mean, maybe short term, but in the end, the business is created by um, selling a perspective to people that they can 
rally behind. And, and that's what to me on the marketing really is. It's, it's educating the customers around the problems they have, possible solutions, and not always talking about yourself, but about the industry and, and, and where it's going. So if you saw the world the way we see the world, you would see our product or our service as something essential that you want in your life. And that's why it's so important to have certain pillars and principles down for your content so that you're not all over the place. What are you about? Talk about that. And I think this is a nice transition to the last topic I wanted to Mm -hmm. cover, which is around leadership. You mentioned thought leadership earlier. Mm -hmm. I read in your blogs, five marketing leader skills. You have a blog that you call the growth leadership blog. So leadership is very important in your work. And what you've just described essentially is someone with a vision, a point of view, trying to educate others so that they share the perspective so deeply that they choose to act and in a sense follow. So this seems to be in your DNA, this this sense of, of leadership. Tell us more about that. Why is leadership such an important theme in your work? To me, it's not only about leading other people. It's also a little bit about leading yourself. And so why I chose specifically to talk about leadership is because it's oftentimes a bottleneck when it comes to marketing positions. Because oftentimes, either you have practitioners coming up and then they're like, oh, I need to lead people, right? Oh, what's that about? And then they micromanage because they just came up as a practitioner and they know how to do it well and then it gets messy. Or then you have managers coming in from above and telling everyone what to do, because, but, but they've never done it themselves. Both is problematic and I just saw myself, I mean, as I outlined in the story in the beginning, I was leading a marketing team relatively early and I was not prepared for it. And so I kind of want to teach upcoming leaders what it is about when you're just starting. One of them is just, okay, there's going to be some pain, but then what you need to do is you need to reflect on what went wrong. And then that means progress. Pain plus reflection equals progress. So, but this is self-leadership more than anything else. I feel it's easier to start with that because people then around you see it and then they follow your approach. To me, leadership really means, are you inspiring people because you have a unique perspective and a unique point of view that you can rally people behind? Are you also doing the thing that you're saying you're doing? Those are two things that come up over and over. And then the third aspect is it doesn't always go as planned. So how do you deal with conflict? So maybe on the simplest level, you know, there's that idea that you can, you should never sell anything that you don't use yourself. Like you shouldn't endorse a product or encourage someone to do something that you yourself don't do, that is just superficial. And when you get found out, the customer really feels betrayed. And then on the other level is if I'm leading a organization or a department or a team and we need to do something hard and difficult, it has to be worth it in the end. And therefore, I need to have a deep conviction that this project we're working on is of such importance that it's worth putting in the time and attention to building a system like you have and thinking deeply and doing our research. So Am I getting you? Like it's both a not obvious thing, but it's all about really believing in what you're selling. And then it's also about how do you get people to go through the process required to bring that product or service to market? Am I getting you? Yeah, totally. I think always it's not black and white because you might have a vision of the thing that you are trying to do, but you're not there yet. 
and it's maybe not perfect yet, but you have a genuine interest in and, and a genuine desire for the outcome that you're trying to achieve. And I think that's just what both you for yourself, but also for the people that you're leading, they feel that. Are you for real or are you not for real, right? Like, are, are you believing in this? And obviously there are days, weeks and months where you, where you struggle. That's okay, you know, but just in general, as a general feeling that you give people, are you invested yourself? And I guess that unless it's just about money or just about fame, I guess it's a prerequisite, you're right, right? It's a prerequisite that you believe yourself in the thing that you're producing or the service that you're providing. Very interesting. And I guess that... It's also being able to live up to that over time and reevaluate, do I still believe in the thing that I am selling? Do I still believe in the thing that I am marketing? In my mind right now, our agency, we're very focused on live events. It's been a big mm -hmm. part of our history. We go through coronavirus, everything goes virtual. Now the opportunity to go live comes again. But our awareness of the environmental impact of live events, especially mm -hmm. flying to do live events, has been mm -hmm. raised massively. So now it's it's almost like we were ignorant of that previously, and it made the focus great live events. It was like, yeah, our value is great live events. Mm -hmm. Now it has to be great live events with ultimately net zero mm -hmm. live events. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, well, Am I still passionate about the live events? If I now uh -huh. have to add the complication mm -hmm. of figuring out how to do them with net zero, and do I believe in net zero enough that I would you know, not do greenwashing? In order to still do my live events, I need people to think that I'm green. It sounds like from you, it's like, no, you need to be a thought leader here and say, look, I have no idea how we're going to do these live events green. But that's what we need to do. Right. Am I kidding you? Totally. And and, and I, th I think that's a very important point. So we are mimetic creatures, right? I mean, we are copying the people around us. The people that we respect, we copy. Be very mindful of who you copy, how you copy them, because you get the whole package if you copy. Because you don't get only the nice thing. I feel like checking in with yourself and the industry and everything constantly and kind of reflecting like, are we still on? Are we still okay? Everybody else okay? Okay, good. To the second point that you made in the end, absolutely. I mean, Everybody knows that it takes time to get to a vision, to, to get to a vision. I mean, that's why it's a vision and that's why it's inspiring. And that's why you can rally people behind an interesting cause. And for example, in, in your example, if you say net zero events are something that you are passionate about and that you think you can create over the next five years, then that's absolutely something that people can believe in. And then you will attract the right people. You will attract the right partners. You will attract the right... right? So I can give you another example, like from us, it's, we are constantly talking about like, look, we don't do campaigns to customers. We don't do campaigns. We don't do one-off campaigns. What we're doing is we're setting up the infrastructure first, and then we're setting up processes and systems, and then we can do the interesting stuff. That's a boring pitch, but we believe in it and we are living it. Some people, they just also need a direction. They're like all over and then like, oh, okay. So, okay. That makes sense. Right. That makes sense. But a lot of customers would probably lose that way. Potential customers probably lose that way. But we feel that if we are very clear about what we believe in, you also attract the right people, attract the right customers, the right employees, the right partners, because, you know, you just told them what you're about. And now they know what they sign up for, right? And so 
it's actually over the long term, it's the less risky way to take and also the more joyful way to take because you're actually working with people that you enjoy working with. And again, it's not perfect. We don't always get to implement the perfect system, you know, but that's not what it's about. It's about the perspective that you bring into a company. And as an agency, at least for us, that's what we're bringing. We're bringing like, okay, so you've been doing things this way. We're doing things this way. These are our principles. We think long-term. We don't do one-offs, quick, quick campaigns. Because that's not what we're good at. Talk to the others. They're really good at that. So that's how I would phrase it. So we come full circle to growth. And uh, mm-hmm. I know we're, we're out of time. I, I need to wrap this up. But I, I want to do a second podcast with you on the boring pitch. Because to <laughs> me, it's almost like always the thing we should do is longer, less sexy, than what than totally. what we want to do, right? In everything, totally. it's like it's like what's the boring the boring fitness pitch? Well, do a lot of exercise and eat really right. good food. What? That's boring. Yeah, you know whatever. Uh-huh. So anyway, uh-huh. I love I love this idea of totally. the boring pitch. Uh, that's that's actually a good phrase, the boring pitch. But this is really what it's about. There is a lot of fancy stuff, especially in marketing. But in the end. What you need to nail first is the basics. And the basics are usually not that exciting. You know, it's like, do you collect data? Do you actually analyze that data? How do you analyze that data? Then do you have the marketing team in place that can execute the ideas that you have? No, okay, so then probably you need to first hire a team. It's foundations first. And I feel like that gives the room again for the stuff that then is or more interesting, let's say. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can also find interesting in the depth of the basics. I think we maybe need to rephrase that a little bit as well. Yes. The depth of the basics is another way to think of the boring pitch, right? I remember a university professor I had who had a big influence on me and her obsession was primary sources. And it was just like, look, you're not going to like this, but primary <laughs> sources. Oh, do you have a quick, like, is there a Coles notes? Is there right. like a summary of Greek, right. tragedy, that, that tra- yeah. Greek tragedy that I could read? She's like, yeah. well, no, there's like 20 published Greek tragedies in existence and you got to go read all of them and ideally read them in their original language. You're like, oh, man, right? I, I don't right. like that. That's a boring pitch, but it's right. it's like the depth of really knowing the basics. So yeah, I think you and I could talk all day and yes. I think we, can, <laughs> we need to, to close it down. So our, our podcast is called Message Received and we like to end each episode just by asking that question. So if, what's the one message you hope people take away from, from our discussion? Think about what kind of inclination you have generally. Are you very orderly person, very structured person, or are you more of a chaotic, creative person? And then try to either loosen up the systems that you already have created for yourself. If you're very structured, that gives you freedom. Or on the other hand, if you are very creative and chaotic, introduce some systems, look at what you're already doing that's maybe not so productive, and that will give you freedom there. Ah, it's a great message. And no matter where you are on that spectrum, everyone, I hope you uh, can take that away and and implement it. So, Sandra, thanks again for joining us on Message Received and looking forward to uh, your next blog post on Twitter. Thanks a lot, Tim. Thank you for listening to Message Received. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please watch out for the next one in this series, The Future of Work with Mitch Glick.